Welcome to another edition of uh, Not Your Father's Data Center. I am your host, Raymond Hawkins, uh, sitting in Dallas, Texas. And today we are joined by the Nuclear Energy Institute's Senior Technical Advisor, Everett Redmond. Everett, I think, is joining us from the D.C. area. But Everett, I'll let you dial us in a little closer than that. Oh, yes. So I'm actually sitting here uh, working from home over in Silver Spring, Maryland, just outside of D.C., well, thank you for joining us. We're super grateful to have you. Um, you are our second uh, Nuclear Energy Institute guest. Uh, we got such uh, a great response from uh, having your teammate Matt on that we wanted to have you join us. So thank you for coming and uh, talking with us about nuclear energy and, and certainly energy in the data center space uh, might be the thing we talk about more than anything else. So uh, glad to have you joining us. Excellent. Well, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you before we get into uh, the, the electrons and, and how we're doing this thing and how we're powering all of this digital infrastructure. Tell us a little bit about your background, Everett. Sure thing. So I grew up in Florida, Tampa, Florida, and then um, went up to Boston to go to school, went to MIT, studied nuclear engineering. And then after that, um, well, what, while I was at MIT, I actually worked at a couple national laboratories and then I've been working my way down the East Coast kind of since then. Lived in Philadelphia, um, working for a company, Holtec International, over in Marlton, New Jersey, and then moved down here to D.C. working for the Nuclear Energy Institute. Uh, and in my spare time, I, uh, along with my wife, we teach scuba diving and uh, do a lot of that. So that's that's really kind of the two passions, nuclear energy and scuba diving. I'm not sure which is greater. Well, probably scuba. But I was going to say, we could do a whole show on scuba if you'd like. I'm, oh, I'm yeah, more definitely. <laughs> I still don't understand what the, the bends are. I mean, I, I understand it happens. I understand it has something to do with gas and pressure and all that, but uh, I understand that's an issue, but I don't think I could explain it. Well, have you tried scuba yet? I, so I've done lots of snorkeling. I've not done any scuba. And I got to say, there's a little bit of a fear factor there just of the, uh, you know, getting, but I, I like being in the water. I love going to Hawaii. I love going to the Caribbean, but all I've ever done is snorkel. So we let's, let's take a five minute um, diverge and talk about scuba. Sure thing. So as a, just so you know, you can try it out. We call it a, a Discover Scuba class. You could do it at a resort or on a boat. You go off with an instructor. That's actually how I got interested in it. And the instructor will be with you the whole time. You'll dive no greater than 40 feet. Um, and so it'll be nice and confined, controlled, and you'll get that opportunity to experience it. You can also try it out in a pool. We do that when we have students because we don't have ready access to the ocean here in D.C. Um, for scuba diving, not anything that, you know, people would really find. Not, not you want to go see, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I got to ask just one scuba question. I don't I, that what I struggle with is the idea that, hey, um, you know, I, I dive in a pool and I swim down to 10 or 15 feet and I can already feel the pressure. How does your body handle the pressure of 40 or 50 or 60 feet? I just that part. I know it works. It just bewilders me. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So when you dive down in a pool, what you're feeling is pressure in your ears. And so what we train people to do is just equalize same way you do on an airplane you would equalize as you go down in depth. Other than that, the body doesn't feel anything else. So the pressures, you won't feel any change in physiology. You know, your physical body won't feel anything different at 10 feet, 40 feet, 130 feet, which, by the way, is the maximum depth allowed for recreational diving. Um, it's just really the ears and equalize the same way you do on the plane. 
Everett, what are these people doing that I see? They go down on this like cable and they go crazy deep and then they come back up. What I mean, literally like we're almost what is uh, they're not scuba diving. What is the what are no, those crazy people doing? Yeah, that's called free diving. Um, I've got some friends that do that. It's basically breath hold diving. So you take a breath at the surface and you've got to practice to do this. Uh, you take a breath at the surface, dive down, and then come back up. And the ones on the line and things like that may be doing, like, competitions and stuff. But I haven't personally done it, but I've got friends that have. And so they're not swimming around or anything. They're just, how deep can I get on one breath and still make it back up? That's essentially the... Some of them the, are, the, yeah. 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 Some of them are doing it that way. So so, so the, the, the longest, what's the longest, number one, and what's the deepest, and then what's the coolest place you ever snorkeled? Oh, so the deepest I've been is 130 feet recreational limits. Um, the longest dive was probably, it, it depends on the depth, because the deeper you go, the quicker you use air. So it depends very much on the depth. Um, but an hour and 40 minutes at about 25 feet or so. Um, now the coolest, oh, there's a variety of things. So we dove Galapagos back a few years ago, whale sharks, uh, which are impressive. I mean, it just, they don't look like they're moving until you try to keep up with them. And then it's a bit of work. Um, but you know, we were just down in, um, Bimini Bahamas with, uh, great hammerheads. And then we've done uh, the Philippines with tiny stuff and wrecks. I like wrecks a lot too. North Carolina is great for that. What's wrecks? What's that? So like uh, ships that have gone down. Either oh, wrecks. So as... wreckage. I got you. Yeah, I got you. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, ships that have either been sunk as artificial reefs or casualty wrecks. Um, there's actually a U-boat um, off of the coast of North Carolina within recreational limits from World War II. Wow. And can you get in it or you just go and look at it? No, you go look at it. I mean, you need special training to get into, to go into wrecks anyways. Um, gotcha. It's called a wreck certification, but that particular wreck is not one that I would recommend anybody try to penetrate. Got it. Got it. So, but you're still seeing a U-boat on the bottom of the, the ocean. Exactly. I mean, from a historical perspective, it's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm going to take us down another road here in just one second on the, on the whole diving and wrecks thing. But uh, one of my questions was going to be sharks. And you've already mentioned two different species of sharks. So that's kind of normal when you're diving, you're seeing sharks? Yeah. You, you'll see reef sharks and nurse sharks a lot in many different locations um, in the world. And for the most part, sharks really don't care about you. You don't look like anything they eat. You don't you know, you just, and you got a big tank on you, so you've got some sort of, uh, like, a magnetic field around you and stuff, so it, you're not of interest to them. Interesting. So they're not engaging with you unless you go no. engage with them. Gotcha. Right. Fascinating. All right. So while we're talking about wrecks, and I promise we're going to get to nuclear energy in just a second. So, so Bitcoin mining, big data center topic for us. Um, one of the things that fascinates me, uh, not just Bitcoin, but all digital currency, is how many lost Bitcoin there are in the world. And and uh, had a friend of mine from uh, one of the Bitcoin miners on the podcast talking about that if you look at all of the gold and treasure that is in the bottom of the ocean uh, that's lost, uh, and I'm not going to get the numbers right. I'm just going to get directionally orders of magnitude right. It's a few billion dollars worth of treasure that people spend money going and looking for. And that the amount of lost Bitcoin, so in a digital wallet on somebody's hard drive that they've thrown away years ago, there's over $17 billion worth of lost Bitcoin today. So oh, it's, it's, that, like, it, wow. it's, it's, it's like quadruple the, the um, amount of uh, value of, of 
gold bars and things on the bottom of the ocean in wreckage. St- staggering number. So I'm not going diving for uh, lost hard drives, but I thought it was an interesting side. Yeah, note. that is amazing. Actually, I'd never heard that before. That's um, I'm sure I don't have anything lying around digitally that would amount to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, diving is cool. Um, I-, I tell you, a couple more moves south and you'll be in God's country. You're not far from Georgia. Just give it a little time. Another one or two moves south and you'll be in Georgia. So, I've got uh, family down there. Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, well, I am grew up neighbors to your north, so just just a little bit north of you in uh, in Atlanta, my, or just a little town south of Atlanta. So so uh, that that's home for me. All right, well, let's get into nuclear energy. Uh, I appreciate you telling us a little bit about you. I do want to clarify it because I hadn't mentioned it yet. Um, this is Doctor uh, Everett Redmond, so everybody knows. I don't. I don't want to disrespect your uh, your your education and your uh, time, but you've graciously allowed us to go with Everett for today. But I do want to mention that uh, you do hold a PhD uh, in this stuff, so you know what you're talking about. All right. So first subject in um, what's going on today, and the in the new things that people are thinking about doing. Um, I, I have to admit that I'm old enough that I remember some of the older. Uh, nuclear stories and, and the, the challenges in our space. What are new things that people are doing with nuclear energy? What are new projects? What's What's got the nuclear energy business excited today? Uh, it's, there's a lot of things going on, and the, the world continues to change over the last five years. I mean, it's changed enormously. Let me just actually take the Bitcoin as an example. So last year, we saw a number of Bitcoin companies make agreements with uh, reactor uh, companies or utilities, and in, ca- in one case, uh, make an agreement with a new uh, reactor vendor. So they're looking for that clean, carbon-free energy to power their mining operations. And so you're seeing those connections. I mean, two years ago, that wasn't happening. And so you've got that going on. In terms of development and new projects, um, so let me just hit a few. I mean, there's, let me just start with what's happening here in the United States. So we've got a company called New Scale, which is developing a new um, light water, water cooled reactor, small modular reactor. They're teamed up with a company called UAMPS, Utah Associated Municipal Power System, so a set of municipal utilities. Um, They're planning to build an Idaho National Laboratory uh, and be operational around 2029. New Scale's already had their design reviewed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Um, so that project's underway. They haven't begun construction yet, but that's going to come very shortly. And then you've got a couple other companies, TerraPower and X-Energy. And so your folks on this listening to this podcast may not have heard of any of these companies, but I'm pretty sure they've heard of one of the investors, Bill Gates, who's invested in TerraPower. Um, now, what, is, so what has he done before? I'm not sure, familiar with him, Bill Gates. What's... <laughs> yeah, you know, just, I, not much, actually. It's so, something in the uh, software business, I seem to think. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. that's it, exactly. So <laughs> it's... Uh, and both of those companies are um, were awarded projects from the Department of Energy. So in 2020, the Department of Energy um, awarded projects under the Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. That's something that Congress authorized. These two demonstrations are supposed to be up and running in around 27-28 time period. TerraPower has announced that they are going to build in Kemmerer, Wyoming. Uh, so what's fascinating about that? Well, Kemmerer... Kemmerer, Wyoming, is a small town. Um, I think about 2,700 people. It is currently operating a coal-fired generation facility, and they're going to retire that. 
and they're going to replace it with nuclear. So that's awesome. That's something that hasn't been done before, and I think that'll be a trend going forward. The other thing that's interesting is Wyoming has no nuclear right now. They do mining, but they don't operate nuclear. So the state will have nuclear power for the first time. I should also have mentioned that UAMPS um, currently has no nuclear assets either, so they're looking at doing nuclear. Why are they doing it? Well, the project name kind of outlines a carbon-free power project. They're looking to replace coal generation in the future with um, nuclear. And then X-Energy is building reactor up in um, at Washington State um, with uh, uh, at the Energy Northwest site up there. And um, while they have a site up there and they have a reactor already, this is to expand their carbon-free energy production there. Now, TerraPower and X-Energy are both, um, well, NuScale is too. They're all three advanced reactors, but TerraPower and X-Energy are non-water-cooled reactors. So TerraPower uses liquid sodium for a coolant, and X-Energy uses high-temperature gas. And then following on on projects, if we look north, to the, north of the border for a second, Canada, Canada just announced last year, end of last year, Ontario Power Generation picked um, GEH, GE Hitachi's BWRX 300. They're going to build that at the Darlington site, have it operational around 2028, and then their intent is to build a fleet of small modular reactors after that. And then also up in Canada, Ontario Power Generation's teamed up with a U.S. company called Ultra Safe Nuclear, and they're going to build a microreactor at um, the Chalk River site, Canadian Nuclear Labs. Um, microreactors are typically less than 5 megawatt electric or so. Um, and their intent there is to think about using microreactors for, say, remote locations. Think northern Canada, think Alaska, where you may have communities that are generating electricity with um, diesel fuel that you can only bring in once or twice a year, depending on weather. And then there's a couple other projects, too, going on. So, I mean, really, it's blossomed in terms of what the activity that's going on. Everett, that's a bunch. I got a bunch of questions. I was taking notes while you were talking. So you already defined one. Uh, I was going to ask, what's a micro reactor? You've, you gave us that definition. So micro is considered smaller than five megawatts of usable electricity. You know, I use five megawatts. The, there was an infrastructure bill that was passed last year um, that President Biden signed. Um, it has in it less than 50 megawatts electric. But what we're seeing, the reason I use five is that's what we're typically seeing right now from the developers. Gotcha. You, you mentioned another one in there. You, you, I didn't catch the phrase exactly right, but small or mid-sized reactor. What, what size? I think that was the Kamer site. What is that one? Yeah, size small modular megawatts. reactors. Yeah, small so modular, small, that's what you said. Exactly. So small modular reactors are defined as um, less than 300 megawatt electric. So as a reference point, our um, existing fleet right now operates um, reactors that are about 1,000 megawatt electric or so on average. So this is about a third of the size, which means it's going to be less capital cost. Smaller means easier to build. And the idea is to move some of this construction back into a factory. So we can do more factory construction and then deploy at the site and bring it online much quicker. Um, but small modular reactors are less than uh, 300. Um, the TerraPower design is 345 megawatt electric. Now, one thing that's really unique about them is they're attaching to it a, a molten salt thermal storage system. So that'll permit them to peak out at about 500 megawatt electric. 
So the way I think about it is the following. They're going to work very well with renewables. So if you think about solar for a second, during the daytime when the sun is shining, solar's producing a lot of energy, the TerraPower reactor will be running at full power, but they'll put less than 345 megawatts on the grid. They'll heat up that salt system. At night, when the sun goes down and the solar stops providing power, then the reactor puts full 345 megawatts on the grid and they pull heat out of the thermal storage system to put more power on the grid, peaking out at 500. So that's oh. a simple way to think about it. So they've got thermal storage for some of the electricity that they can generate during the day while nuclear, excuse me, while solar is putting power in onto the grid, putting electrons on the grid. I got it. Fascinating. Yeah. And they're the first ones to do this automatically, automatically, I mean, by from the beginning with the design. Um, thermal storage systems can be used um, in other situations. X Energy, though, let me just touch on them real quick to kind of round this out. They're um, 80 megawatt electric reactors, and they're going to be four of those for a total of 320 megawatt electric at the Energy Northwest site. And actually, New Scale is um, that's going to build with UAMPs. They're 77 megawatt electric each reactor, and they plan to build them in either either a four pack, a six pack, or a 12 pack. Huh. What Depending was the number on, on the that customer one? Wants. That's New Scale. Wonder what was the size of each one? Uh, Seventy-seven megawatts electric. Seventy, each. seventy-seven, and they and they'll do a number of pack six, twelve, or what'd you say, six, twelve, or eighteen? Four, six, or twelve. Four, yeah. six, or twelve. Got it. Depending on what ends up the customer ends up needing. Got yeah. It. Well, and so thinking about you know the business you're in with data centers and everything. I mean, just taking a quick look at some of the information. You you guys, I gather, build data centers of different size, different energy demands. So there may be some unique opportunities here. Well, so it's you're leading a little bit to where we're going. This is one of the conversations in our space is, hey, how legitimate is it? Could you build, could data center providers like ourselves partner with nuclear energy providers and have an entire campus or footprint that is entirely nuclear? And, and these numbers are certainly big enough. The answer is, you know, this is this is one of those conversations where it just jumps off the page. Our, for us, a normal campus for us is about 300 megawatts. Uh, of um, uh, IT loads, so we need about 450 or 500 total, and, and that would fit in some of the larger ends of this if we wanted to power an entire campus off of a nuclear facility. You mentioned earlier, Everett, you were talking about, you, you mentioned a, a long acronym, but it was Utah was in it, and you said they were building in Idaho, So, and then you mentioned uh, Energy Northwest in the state of Washington and Wyoming, so, so there's certainly a, a Pacific Northwest bent. Is there a why behind that? So I think it just happens to be where um, the power is needed. So energy. So Washington State, for example, passed a law um, back a couple years ago that they need to be carbon-free in electricity generation by 2045. So that's part of what's driving the conversation up there. Um, and then UAMPS needs to have some power, new power generation coming online as they begin to retire coal, so they have a demand. And the same is true for Pacific Corp. Um, but we have other, you know, companies that are looking at the longer term deployment of new nuclear as well. And we're in the process of finishing up two large AP-1000 reactors down in Georgia um, at the Vogel site. Um, so those will come online uh, next year. And so that'll be 2200, 20, yeah, 2200 megawatts of electricity put on the grid 24-7, 365 clean nuclear. Come on, Georgia. 
I like hearing that. Um, all right. So, so another question, as I listened to you describe these projects that, that jumped out at me, you said uh, scheduled to come online. I think the earliest was 2027. Some of them were 2028, 2029. I think one might have even been 2030 as I was writing as fast as, as I could while you were talking. That to me as a, as a construction guy, as we build buildings, a long lead build for us is 18 months. That's really long. Um, these are multiple years. What's behind, is, at first, is that normal in the nuclear space? And and if it is, what's behind that? What part, for those of us, because a lot of the folks who listen to us are in, our, are in the same you know construction delivery business that we're in, what's different about building a nuclear plant that's got that kind of lead time? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so what's different is there's a regulatory approval process that you've got to go through. So um, in every country that has nuclear, there's a regulatory agency. In the United States, it's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, a federal independent agency that oversees all nuclear plants throughout the country. Um, and they are, that process to go in and license something with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission can take a few years. So for example, what you're gonna see what we're going to see here is that these companies will go in, they'll get a permit from the NRC for construction. Then as they're building, they'll submit a application to operate the, license, operate the reactor, get a license to operate it. We expect that permit to um, get approval for construction to take about two years, two or a little bit more. And then it's going to take you a couple years. We're hoping a couple years to build the reactor. And then, you know, at the same time as you're building it, they're going to work on getting that license, operating license. So right there, between those, you're looking at about five years or so. Um, these companies, when you decide to build nuclear, there's a little bit of planning that's got to go into it. And you've got to take the time to develop that license application and stuff. So that's at least another year before you get anything submitted. So the time frame tends to be longer than what you're used to simply because, you know, you and one thing I'd say is what your company is doing, what your industry is doing, you do this all the time. We haven't been doing this all the time. We hope to get to the point of where we're doing this all the time, building one right after the other. And I believe that'll come. I mentioned that OPG, Ontario Power Generation, wants to build a fleet of small modular reactors but we're quite not quite there yet. So the first ones are gonna be first of a kind, and then we'll take lessons from that, learn, and we have, we expect to reduce costs and reduce time to construction. But the reality is you're going to have to go through a regulatory process, then you do the construction and bring the reactor online. Gotcha. That's for those of us in our business, we call it entitlement and permitting it. That, that is a process, but you're right. We, we're doing it all day, every day. Uh, we're doing it with uh, AHJs the, repeatedly over and over. And we're dealing with generally local municipalities, not the federal government. And, and right. so I certainly am sure there's some layer of complexity there as well. And, and we're building buildings, not nuclear reactors. So, so I get it. That That's super helpful. But yeah. hearing you talk about six and seven, eight year timelines made me go, whoa, that's that's well, a lot of work. And, and I know it's it's it can be a bit of a drawback, but at the end of the day, the benefits are really huge. I mean, so thinking about the data center as an example, you get the reactor up and running, then you've got your own guaranteed source of power. These reactors, I mean, the fleet right now that we operate here in the U.S., 93 reactors, they go 18 to 24 months um, without refueling. So, and they typically operate 24-7, 365. Um, the new design, some of the newer designs, 
have the potential to operate much longer than that between refuelings. Um, one of the designs actually going to do a little bit more of um, refueling, online refueling. So they're going to take it a little bit of a different approach, but you're really looking at some innovative projects here and some really good opportunities for your industry as well as others. Well, I'm going to back up a little because you you, you gave me a good uh, thought there. 93 reactors, that's a U.S. number today? Yes, correct. And what's the megawatts those 93 reactors are producing today? Oh, I'd have to go look at the total number, but let's just assume for a second they're average out to about 1,000 megawatts each. Okay, gotcha. So that's a bunch. All right. Yeah. Um, but in comparison to the total grid, where are we? Six, seven so, percent? No, nuclear is 20% of the total electricity generation in the is U.S. Is it really? I had yep. no idea it was that high. All we right. are 20% of the total electricity generation, and we are 50% of the carbon-free generation in the U.S. Gotcha. right now. And so in carbon-free, we're adding solar, wind, geothermal. Anybody hydro else on that well. list? Hydro yep. as well. Okay, yeah. How many? I know there's some good bit of hydro in Canada. How much hydro do we have here? You know, it's not a great deal, and most of that's sitting up in the Pacific Northwest, I believe. So um, the utilities in Washington State certainly have um, hydro, but hydro is one of those things that doesn't necessarily, it, it fluctuates over the course of the year based on snowpack and things like that. Yeah, yeah right. It's not as, not as uh, oh, I would say none of the carbon frees are as reliable as, as nuclear. I think that's safe to say. Is it is it okay to make that statement? Yeah, I no, that that's true. I mean, our capacity factor is uh, 90% plus. So what does that mean? The percentage of time, basically, that you're up and running. So as a fleet, we have been operating with capacity factors greater than 90% for the last two decades. Um, there's no other generation source that comes close to that level of capacity factor. So we are really what is referred to as baseload. You know, we're there, we're running all the time. And then over the course of a day, the electricity demand from the consumers goes up and down. So think about it down in Georgia. You know, in the summertime, the during the daytime, your uh, electricity is going to peak because of um, air conditioning. During the summer, in the wintertime too, actually, if it goes up quite a bit because you guys use a lot of um, heat pumps. So electricity demand will go up. But then it may trail off at night or something like that. So that peaking is typically filled out with other energy sources, which is why at the end of the day, for the electricity system, we need a mix. Nuclear is part of it. Wind and solar will be part of a carbon-free generation source, as will hydro. In right now, you know, you've got the other sources like natural gases and coal. Well, I don't, I don't want to put you uh, on the spot, but if you had to say how long it would take our grid to transition from um, coal-fired power um, generation, how long would it take us to transition completely off of coal? And it's a, was it half the grid today? No, coal is actually less than that. Coal has been dropping off quite a bit. So um, uh, natural gas is um, probably the dominant supplier at the moment. Uh, but it's hard. I'm, I'm not able to give you a real prediction, but let me answer your question this way. So what we're seeing is, and what we have seen over the last few years, is a lot of utilities in the United States make commitments to be carbon-free and to be carbon-free, say, by 2050. So 2050 is kind of a target date. So you're seeing utilities make that commitment. Now, they're going to have to figure out how they do that. 
I personally think new nuclear is going to be a big part of it. Wind and solar will obviously be a big part of it too. But I think you're going to have to have new nuclear to get carbon free for the grid. Now, they're not the only ones making these commitments. You're seeing other companies in other sectors. So you're seeing oil companies um, up in Canada, for example, there's they have oil sands. Canada um, is the fourth largest oil producer in the world, and they have the third largest set of reserves. The oil sands companies up there have made commitments to be carbon free by 2050 as well. So they're trying to figure out how they're going to do that. Carbon sequestration is going to be a big part of that for them, um, and maybe nuclear will be too. You're seeing other companies and um, oil companies and other uh, industrial companies make commitments to be carbon free as well. So while I can't give you a date as to when we're going to get there, um, the writing's on the wall and that's where we're heading. Gotcha. Well, let's, if you don't mind, this is, uh, this is awesome stuff. And I love hearing the, about the new projects and what's coming and how the world is changing. Um, certainly on the world stage today, uh, the, the, you know, the, um, Russia's aggression towards Ukraine, is that impacting your industry at all from a supply chain perspective, from a fuel perspective? What's your thoughts on what's going on there? And, and certainly from a uh, what you're comfortable commenting about? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, first off, it's, it's such a horrible situation. And I feel for all of the folks in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has 15 reactors um, there. They are currently... Um, I think all but about six of them are uh, currently operating. Um, they, the International Atomic Ed Energy Agency, the director general actually just visited um, in the south Ukraine at one of their nuclear plants to meet with some of their senior Ukrainian officials as well as staff. The IAEA is trying to provide as much assistance as they can. Um, these reactors are continuing to operate safely. Um, but the whole situation with Russia has created some challenges in supply chain, and it's, you know, reverberated throughout multiple areas. So our industry is looking at the supply chain um, issues there, too, and dealing with them right now. Um, I don't anticipate any major problems, but the whole issue behind Russia and the invasion with Ukraine is making many people rethink, you know, what your reliance might want to be on foreign entities. And so, you know, we're trying to do a lot of domestic fuel supply here in the United States, build that up so that we can also be an exporter of um, more stuff. And we ultimately want to export the reactors that we're designing. In fact, a couple of the projects I mentioned are already being exported outside to Canada. So we fully expect that the world's going to build a lot new nuclear and we want to be the provider of it. Can you give us a little bit of an understanding of um, any... Um, any eyes roll versus and not versus as in opposed to each other, but the difference between the International Atomic Energy Agency and the National Nuclear Energy Institute. How do these guys? How do you guys play in the same sandbox together? Yeah. So so that yeah. Let me actually take a moment and talk about the U.S. and then I'll kind of move into the international for a second. Um, so we are NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute. We're a trade association, so we represent the commercial nuclear industry here in the United States. Uh, the majority of utilities that generate electricity with nuclear are members of NEI, as well as developers, designers, the entire fuel supply chain from miners, enrichers, converters, back into the fuel cycle, various suppliers. We have over 300 members in 17 countries. 
but our predominant focus is on the U.S. And we are the policy organization for the industry in the United States, and we um, represent the industry on generic regulatory issues. There are two other entities in the U.S., the Electric Power Research Institute, which focuses more on R&D sort of stuff for electricity in general as well as nuclear. And then there's the Institute for Nuclear Power Operations, which is a uh, member organization as well, and it focuses on excellence in operations. So that's above and beyond the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Now, the International Atomic Energy Agency is somewhat similar to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's not quite an international regulator per se, but they do um, have influence over the world in various countries. They do safeguards reviews in various countries. Um, so they are involved in a, in a regulatory fashion in a multitude of countries. So any new country that wants to build nuclear that doesn't currently have nuclear will be interacting with the International Atomic Energy Agency. And then there's also, similar to the Institute for Nuclear Power Operations, at the world level, there's an organization called WANO, World Association of Nuclear Operators. So one thing the nuclear industry does is share information amongst itself and worldwide, share that knowledge. We are always taking issues, learning from them, continuing to advance, continuing to improve. Um, it's just part of our culture, part of the safety culture, continual improvement, continual advancement. So uh, for you and I, both a little bit uh, older than some of the folks who listen to us, pretty darn good safety record in the space for, for a long time now, hasn't it been? Excellent, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the, the official statistics, but I think I've heard someone say no, no um, major uh, loss of life or any of those issues in the nuclear space in America in decades. That's that's correct. In fact, there's no nuclear accident in the United States, commercial nuclear accident that's resulted in any fatalities or any injuries. Ever. Yeah, that's pretty solid. A lot of other industries like to be able to say that. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Well, Everett, we certainly do appreciate you educating us a little bit more on the nuclear energy space. Uh, love that the, there are smart guys like you doing this for us because uh, we are, you know, I liked your, your talk about the 2050 goal, right? That's where we're headed. All of us want to see the planet uh, do well and thrive and survive. And if we can uh, help by reducing greenhouse gases and, and still uh, power everybody's iPhones, because that to me is always the uh, the interesting part. Hey, we, we want a carbon-free environment, but uh, we also all want to uh, watch our TVs and air condition our houses and, and carry our phones around. So um, we got to get energy somewhere, and you guys are helping solve that problem. We do indeed, and you know we want to, as we're moving forward, we're going to electrify the auto industry and all of this other stuff and decarbonize everything. But you're absolutely right. We continue to want the conveniences we've gotten used to. we got to have them. Got to have a carbon-free power. Not, nothing to uh, to crystallize how important electricity is to Americans than having a few days of your power go out. So uh, I live in Texas, and I live through what we call down here snowmageddon. So, you know, eight days without electricity, and, and it, it crystallizes pretty quickly for you how dependent you are on it. I mean, things you just don't even think of, M much less my, my friends with electric cars who couldn't go anywhere, either because of the batteries uh, couldn't function because of the cold, or they were just nowhere to charge the car. But, I mean, your freezer goes out. Your refrigerator goes 
goes out. Your all the food goes bad. You know, your heating of most people's homes heated by electricity. You just you, you know can't see it. I mean, just quickly cascades where you realize how incredibly dependent we are on electricity. So so we 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 want to see the planet uh, thrive, but we also are pretty energy dependent as a society. That is for sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's um, and the Texas situation was a really good example of that challenge. Uh, I mean, it was an unfortunate situation, um, but yes, we have to have that reliable electricity. We have to have a very stable grid to be able to provide that power. Yeah, I like the way you referred to it. I think you said you view nuclear as the baseline. Hey, we're 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 always on and we're always there, and yep. uh, we, we can provide that solid, reliable uh, base footprint, uh, and then we can handle the spikes with some other uh, solutions in the marketplace. Yeah, we need everything. It has to work together, and we're trying to make sure that happens. Awesome, awesome, Everett. Thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, this is another one uh, in the can for us, and we appreciate our friends at the Nuclear Energy Institute. Thank you so much. Thank you, Raymond. I appreciate the opportunity.